from the newsroom of Impact Alpha. This is your Impact Briefing for Friday, July 15th. I'm Monique Aiken. I'm pleased to welcome Margo Kane, Chief Investment Officer for Spring Point Partners, to talk about family offices, catalytic capital, and emerging fund managers. Hi, Margo. Hi, Monique. Thanks for having me. But first, here's what you need to know from the week in Impact Investing. The 2022 proxy season is nearly over, and the results were sobering. Shareholder advocates had high expectations going into this year's annual general meetings after last year's dramatic wins at ExxonMobil and elsewhere. With few exceptions, the efforts fell short. So what gives? In a guest post on Impact Alpha, Majority Action's Eli Karsagod Staub lays the blame at the feet of BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street, which together control 25% of shares across the S&P 500. His take? BlackRock and Vanguard, in particular, appear to have voted against ambitious action on climate risks. Calls for racial equity audits fared better, winning majority votes at McDonald's, Apple, Johnson & Johnson, and Home Depot. J.P. Morgan Chase, Pfizer, and Verizon came to agreements with racial equity proponents. But a proposal for a racial equity audit at Chevron fell just short of a majority. BlackRock, holding 6.5% of the oil company's shares, voted no. The crisis in Sri Lanka gave birth to an irresistible narrative that a crash transition to organic farming sent the country into an economic and political tailspin. The problem is that it's not true. Rather, the mess that was made of the country's agricultural policy says more about the country's poor governance than it does about organic farming. The tip-off? A poorly timed tax cut hamstrung the government's ability to respond to the economic crisis. Impact Alpha's Jessica Pothering has the story. Big private equity firms continue to make big impact plays. KKR said in a filing that it has raised nearly $1.5 billion for its second global impact fund. The private equity giant's first close is already bigger than its $1.2 billion first impact fund. The difference? KKR's Ken Melman said in a recent talk, this time there are proof points. He said KKR's first fund, which has made 15 investments, has recorded a gross internal rate of return of more than 50%. And British International Investment, that's the former CDC group, committed up to $250 million to the electric vehicle spinoff of Indian automaker Mahindra & Mahindra. India has a target of 100% EVs by 2030. So Marco, welcome to the briefing. This week, you had a great piece in Impact Alpha about how to boost the impact of catalytic capital in supporting emerging fund managers. First, tell us a little bit about how Springpoint came around to this strategy. So we were founded a couple of years ago uh, in Philadelphia. So relatively new entity ourselves. We are a social impact organization. We invest in transformational leaders, networks, and solutions that power community change and advance justice. So we deploy multiple tools for that, uh, to advance that mission. One of those tools is investments. Um, So we are a mission-driven organization and uh, have multiple strategies that we focus on. One of those strategies is really rooted in economic justice. And that for Springpoint, considering kind of where we operate um, in the in the asset owner and philanthropic world is really focused on how can we build opportunities for wealth generation 
for people that have historically been excluded from those opportunities or systematically stripped of opportunity to build and, and retain wealth. Um, and that's really a strategy um, aiming to figure out effective ways to leverage investment to close the racial wealth gap. So one of the ways in this current, you know, capitalist economy in which we operate, that you can build meaningful wealth, the kind of wealth that can be transferred intergenerationally is through business ownership and, and specifically through high growth business ownership. Uh, things like venture backed businesses um, or other forms of businesses that are profitable, cash flowing um, and, and not, you know, survival mode um, businesses. So those kinds of businesses build ownership, uh, build wealth for their owners and also build wealth for their employees. So could you tell us about some of the fund managers you've seated or anchored as a result of this? Sure. Uh, so one of them, I'll start with Philly since we're here. Uh, one of them is Plainsight Capital, which was founded by Sylvester Mobley and Alex King. And they uh, came together to launch an early stage firm uh, really focused on emerging founders in tech, which corresponds directly with both their own individual experience as entrepreneurs, but also with Sylvester's experience founding a really successful not-for-profit here in Philly called Coded by Kids, which trains youth to be um, both founders and also really high-level operators in and high growth tech businesses. Um, so they, uh, they have a really specific uh, strategy and footprint and thesis. They, they're putting together a team, but because they're not coming with their own vast personal wealth to start a, a management company in private equity and, and really survive that fundraising gauntlet, which typically lasts more than a year, as we know now, um, they they needed some supports to get this up and running. And so um, we we did two things in, in Plainsight's case. We um, provided some support for the startup operating expenses of the fund, knowing that you know bringing, bringing folks on full-time is a upfront expense. And a lot of investors are wary about supporting you know, solo folks that are starting a fund, they need a team, they need partners. Um, and, and if you've already got one, like, you know, that just doubles your expense burden before you're earning any management fees. So um, that's, that's one of the things that we did. And the other thing we did with Ben Franklin Technology Partners here in Philly was provide a warehouse line for Plainsight to start making investments and build that quote unquote new team track record uh, before they uh, go to market later this year uh, to raise the fund in earnest, uh, because that's another really key barrier we see first time uh, fund managers and particularly fund managers of color face. So we often hear about flexible patient and risk tolerant elements of catalytic capital. And you made the point in the piece just that how such investment capital is, de is deployed is just as important as the deployment of the capital itself. So tell us a little bit about how you tried to change the process or go against the grain. And you mentioned power dynamics. That's not often heard from the LP side of the equation. So, you know, there's some sensitivities in your piece that I think are really important to both visualize and name as you do this work. I mean, I wish I could say I had, I had it figured out, Monique, but 
I'm still learning this uh, as well. So uh, I can I can share some examples of how it's come up, how you know missteps I've made, and and how we're working on figuring it out uh, because there is this inherent power dynamic uh, in investing. Full stop. Right, and I've been on both sides of the table uh, my whole career, so I I know I um, know some of it. Um, and it really takes intention and time when you're on the investor side to think about where the partner on the other side is coming from and, and how they're experiencing your process, particularly when they're new to fundraising in this milieu, right? In this fund manager context, uh, since none of these first-time fund managers we're supporting, for example, are unused to fundraising. They're extremely successful fundraisers in lots of other contexts. Um, and one of the things that was so challenging uh, in, in kind of launching the strategy was we would spend many months in the diligence getting to know the, the fund managers, building trust, trying to kind of articulate our motivation in, in supporting them and understanding what their motivations were in terms of entering this industry. And then we would get to like legal documentation, right? And that's just a horrible trust destroy experience, <laughs> especially if you just leave it to the lawyers. I love lawyers, got lawyers, my family, but like, right, trust building is not their strong suit. Um, and we just kept having these impasses, which is not, you know, unusual in deal work, right? Especially in, in first time closes or complex structures. But because the trust was so critical and the relationship quality is so critical to success in these cases, um, that's one place where we, we really rethought what our process was on the close and also how we managed legal review. Uh, so for example, um, we don't do lawyer to lawyer, um, stuff. I, my team and I run interference. Uh, so we receive our counsel's comments. We use our discretion to figure out which ones we're going to go with, um, and kind of repackage those. Um, and we try to keep the, the conversation at, at, you know, business lead to business lead, um, as much as possible. We went through kind of standard LPAs and picked out what terms are, market for a good reason and what terms are market for bad reasons like just because it's precedent right and there's some there's some you know very standard language we have in a bunch of different lpas that's really kind of gross uh but you you're gonna have counsel that's like well that's market um which is my least favorite defense of any term uh because it means nothing because it, it means different things to everybody um so really trying to figure out like what do we care about and why uh and then what are we gonna you know what are we gonna negotiate and why and then instead of being like, this is how you need to change things, we would say, tell us why why you structured it this way, which is differently than how we've seen it before, and be open to, you know, living with it um, and, and not, you know, having to, to redline everything um, to death uh, to, get, to get us over the finish line, uh, accepting some of that ambiguity and discomfort um, when there was really good reason for it. Um, and I'll give you a very specific example in some cases, the, the removal of the GP language in most of these fund agreements includes things like, uh, you know, if you're convicted of a felony, which when you are intersecting that with 
folks who are folks of color, specifically, you know, black leaders who, um, you know, have a history of being unjustly accused under the law. That's a really problematic thing to have your investors be like, oh, well, we can remove you in case, you know, this happens. And this is your business. This is your lifeblood. You've poured your savings into this. Um, so those are some of the things that, that, that we've thought about um, changing in terms of how we do it. And on diligence process, there, you know, in each stage we've been, we've been adjusting, like we'll piggyback on other folks' diligence calls and reference calls um, really in order to try to reduce the, the time load of fundraising on these managers and increase efficiency for them. And in that vein of intentional thinking um, on each step of the process, you know, there's fund one and after that fund two. And often that's created for some of these emerging fund managers and the obstacles than the first time around. So what do you make of that and what can we do about it? Such a good question. And this is something that we're wrestling with now um, and in conversation with our, our first time managers, as well as folks who have made it over that hurdle um, about because you're really making the, the transformation in some ways from, uh, you know, Matt Conwell, who who raised his fund on Twitter effectively <laughs> from individuals, amazingly, uh, to getting, you know, more institutional folks in the door um, to grow that fund size. And and it's essential. I know some people talk about, well, why, why grow your assets under management? Um, what's the point? Um, and the point is, uh, in order to execute on your strategy and build a team, you know, you need that. That's the business model of funds. And all these folks are operating when they're undercapitalized on, you know, pennies, basically, and cannot, you know, hire the team that they want to execute the work. So, so we're very much in favor of, of planning for the long term. And part of our diligence in fund one is understanding where the fund manager is in terms of thinking about fund two, three, and four, and trying to think about the infrastructure pieces that need to go into place. Um, so, uh, and we're sort of starting to see that now on the horizon and, and doing things like, let's talk early about your key terms and how, um, you know, which ones you're gonna fight for and which ones you're going to try to make as like plain as possible. Um, let's talk now about compliance infrastructure. How would you deal with an operational due diligence questionnaire? Um, you know, and, and there's, there's a bunch of infrastructure that doesn't make sense to ask of a first time fund manager because they're not going to have the time or, or capacity to execute on it. But as long as they know it's coming, you can help build their capacity over time. Um, and and provide those supports. I think what I talked about in the blog was bringing in that expertise. They're not going to have a chief compliance officer on day one. They may never, because you can outsource that now, right? But just flagging that by the time you're fund three, this ha you have to really answer this question. <laughs> um, you know, I think that that goes a long way in helping them plan ahead. It's it's no, they're entrepreneurs in their own right. You know, it's no different than funding early stage businesses and figuring out what kind of expertise and supports you can bring to the table. Uh, and another point I deeply appreciated in your piece was about letting go of some of the instinct to mitigate every risk by overstructuring or other things that might actually hamstrung the success of the folks essentially working at cross purposes of your own interest, as well as the interests of the, the person you're purported to be looking to support. 
So as a chief investment officer, how do you think about some of those other risks that are named that people try to um, structure away or do other things that relate to control that um, are not truly in your scope to your point of some of the other ways you've rethought? So I think the hardest, one of the hardest things in investing is knowing the risk you're taking because you're always taking one. You're always taking some risk, right? Always. Even if you're putting cash under your mattress, you're taking risk of a house fire or a burglar. So, um, you know, pretending you can mitigate it all away is, is silly. And we also know that people perceive certain risks to be higher when they're less familiar with those risks. There's a, per, there's a perception gap versus an actuality gap on, on risk profile. Um, so the first thing that we did was get very clear internally about what risks we're willing to take. And we are willing to take risks on first-time teams, first-time models, in exchange for building new, um, new centers of entrepreneurship and investment that's are, that are really centered in founders of color, in equity, in um, more diverse representation. Um, that was a, that's a risk we're willing to take. Not everyone can say that, um, but uh, that, you know, that is something that we also kind of watch very closely. And as I think I said in my piece, that the main mitigant is the quality of your relationship. Um, you know, which which is one of the reasons why having a kind of a trust destroying diligence process <laughs> is a bad idea. If you, if you want to take this kind of risk, you also have to think about how you interact with folks. And I think, um, Unfortunately, especially in the in the self-identified catalytic capital space, um, we're we're not used to uh, adjusting right to the realities of others. Um, there's less accountability for our business model relative to theirs, and most of their investors aren't going to be catalytic investors. Um, and, and some of that, you know, awareness of, you know, understand the risks you're willing to take, understand the risks that other people will take and try to get them to take the risks they're cool with and take the risks that you can uniquely take. And, and being a catalytic capital provider means there's a lot of risk you can take. That's why you're there. Um, so, but you have to be internally clear on it and, and eyes wide open. And so when we think about structure and who's capable of, de- of delivering on cat- catalytic capital goals, you mentioned that you can do some things that other investors can't. Uh, why is that? And, um, you know, how can you all lean into that and maybe other- bring others along with you? Yeah, that that's a great question. And I think that's some of the hardest work that, um, honestly, I, I think the broader industry hasn't, hasn't fully figured out. Um, the reason that Springpoint can take that kind of risk is because our uh, founders really were intentional about our structure and they structured for maximum flexibility. That's how we were able to get really clear on what risks we were willing to take versus which ones we weren't and construct an investment strategy around it. We were not bound by 
tools that are required because of the form of our institution. We're an LLC, highly flexible. Um, you know, we're not we're not crafting our investment strategy for tax optimization of any sort or to meet compliance requirements, which you see. Uh, you know, there's a lot of capital out there that's doing great work. You know, folks that are deploying CRA capital, certainly PRIs, um, but they are bound by the nature of the tool, which is tied to the nature of the institution. Um, and then there's on top of that folks that are, you know, uh, managing other people's money. They're not asset owners themselves. They're fiduciaries. They're, um, they're being held to a particular, you know, standard. And unless the asset owners say, this is, this is the kind of risk I want to take, they can't unilaterally make those kinds of decisions. Um, so, so structuring to be catalytic, and I really liked how Rebecca uh, Butler put it at Grove Foundation, is setting a return target, right, that enables them to be catalytic was required, you know, putting up that, you know, policy statement and setting it up in that way. Um, those kinds of intentionalities it, are required. It, it doesn't happen by accident. Um, but I do think lots of different kinds of investors can take a catalytic lens. I don't think it means everybody needs to have patient and low cost and <laughs> first in money. I think if you're managing, you know, more traditional sources of capital, you can still make moves in ways that can influence markets and generate, generate outsized impact as long as you, you know, know what risk you're taking and you're comfortable taking it. Well, I am delighted to have had this conversation with you. Thank you so much for joining us today. And um, for you, for your humility, you wrote a great piece. So we do hope that we see you again soon. Thank you so much for having me, Monique. And I really enjoyed the conversation. And that's going to do it for this week's Impact Briefing. What you just heard was an excerpt of a longer conversation I had with Margot, and we'll release the full interview next week. Thanks to Margot and our producer, Isaac Silk. Subscribe to get full access to Impact Alpha and The Daily Brief. Right now, we're offering podcast listeners $100 off their first subscription. Go to impactalpha slash subscribe. Go to impactalpha.com slash subscribe and use the code briefing100. Thank you for listening. I'm Anique Aiken, Managing Director for TIP, the Investment Integration Project. Be sure to check back for next week's briefing. And until then, take care.